Uh, so mentioned where I did, and, and Jeff mentioned that we're uh, doing a series, uh, learning, um, learning about and learning how to practice Sabbath, and uh, we've we've kind of figured these weeks. Uh, last week was Sabbath ceasing, the things that we need to stop doing in order to create space for God to work and to recognize how God is already working. Uh, this week, uh, we'll be talking, uh, if you hadn't figured it out already, about Sabbath resting. Um, and I want to invite uh, or introduce a, a, a friend um, who's going to be speaking today. His name is J.R. Briggs. And many of you guys gathered yesterday for a potluck meal at, at our house. And it was a really good time to, to meet and get to know J.R. And, um, and, and so I'll, I'll mention if, if you hadn't gotten to meet him, you'll get to talk to him at potluck. Uh, but a few things about J.R. J.R. Um, lives in the Philly area um, and uh, wears a lot, uh, several hats, uh, including... Um, husband to Megan and father to two boys, um, and uh, he's also a pastor and planted a, a really cool church um, called Renew Community uh, in Lansdale, Pennsylvania. Um, and and Jr. has been an amazing resource uh, for us in planting Oak Church. And you, know, you always want to talk to someone who's gone ahead of you. Uh, made mistakes before you, and also had successes before you um, to, to, to try to um, uh, reproduce successes and avoid easy pitfalls. Uh, also, JR um, has, a, has a role, um, a leadership role in the Ecclesia Network, and, and this is a relational network of churches that he'll speak more about um, that has also been really important for us at Oak Church um, and, and kind of a hidden important, like they've, they've helped us, and y'all don't probably even know the extent of how much they've helped us, both relationally and with resources. Uh, and JR will talk a little bit more about that. But um, JR uh, just finished a, a sabbatical, um, and so he comes to us well-rested, um, maybe not as well-rested after spending a night at our house with our kids um, or staying up late to watch the football game. But uh, he'll he'll speak out of that rest, uh, and so I want to inv invite him up, and, and if y'all would welcome him. Thanks, buddy. Well, it's good to be with you all, and uh, it's good to see a lot of faces that uh, I was with last night uh, as well. And it is a privilege to be here, and uh, I've been praying uh, for Oak Church for a while. It's good to actually see some faces and um, put some names to those prayers, which is just fantastic. So. Uh, I love being in the Bull City. I, uh, when I was 12 and 13 years old, I went to Coach K's Duke basketball camp. I uh, loved it and made it uh, a bucket list item that I would one day actually go to a game. Uh, so I had a 25-year bucket list item check, uh, checked off yesterday. So I'm very thankful for Chris uh, taking me uh, to Cameron. It was fantastic. But it's great to be with you all. And uh, as Chris said, before we jump into the passage this morning that we're going to look at, um, uh, I do want to share briefly about the Ecclesia Network and uh, the role that, uh, that I get a chance to play. In addition to being a, a church planter, I serve a day and a half a week with the network. And there are about 35 churches around the country that are very similar to Oak. Uh, some are large, some are small, some are in rural, some are in suburban, some are in uh, urban settings, some are uh, even college uh, uh, churches. And so... Uh, what you all are doing and talking with Chris and your leaders, um, I'm very excited about you all as you potentially lean in with us uh, and, and think about joining the network, which would be great. Um, but it's, uh, as Chris said, not a denomination, 
nothing against denominations, but it's a relational network where we want to make sure there's equipping and partnering. And uh, we've, we're even seeing churches say, hey, together, let's work together to plant a church. Even though we're a few states away, we're not even in the same zip code. Let's work together to plant uh, and see what God's up to in doing new things elsewhere. And uh, it was incredibly helpful for us almost eight years ago when we uh, started our church. And uh, I, I uh, love the opportunity and the role that I get to play of connecting with and encouraging and walking alongside of other churches and pastors. And if I can uh, in any way or we as a network can help you all moving forward, we'd love the opportunity uh, to be able to do that. But we're, we're very encouraged about what Oak is about and what you all are attempting to do and how you're trying to join with God in the neighborhood here and uh, to see uh, God's kingdom come as will be done in Durham as it is in heaven. Uh, which is just fantastic. So let me pray, and then we'll get into the, the passage this morning. Father, thanks for this opportunity we have to gather. Uh, we are not here for any sort of uh, religious hoop jumping to make ourselves feel better because we went to church today. We're here as the people of God, the called out ones, who are seeking to pay attention to you and respond appropriately. Uh, because it's about you, and we want to see you glorified in the midst of this. So would you shape us? Would you form us? Would you send us out into the week ahead? And so we want to hear from you. I want to hear from you, even as I teach this morning. And uh, we just ask that uh, we would walk out as different people, as formed, as changed people uh, out of here this morning uh, than when we came in. And it's with that that we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, I know you all have been in a series on Sabbath, and uh, normally in January, churches are looking to hit the ground running and do lots of tons of activities and pressing the, the foot on the gas pedal. I'm very encouraged that you all are actually taking some time to look at this idea of Sabbath, of resting. It's very countercultural, and it's very fantastic, and uh, I commend you all uh, for that. Um, this idea of Sabbath is so often uh, misunderstood. I misunderstood it for years and years myself. And uh, I've had a chance to teach on this quite a bit. And oftentimes I call it a nine commandments and one suggestion. Uh, and the reason being is, is so often we look at this idea of Sabbath and we, uh, the, the Ten Commandments, we look at those and say, well, yeah, sure, I should keep that. I should honor my father, mother. I shouldn't murder. I should, right? But somehow we get to Sabbath and we say, oh, well, that's very Old Testament, you know, like we live in the new, new, new covenant and that isn't really, that's so old school, right? That's irrelevant to our context today. But I believe it's absolutely important uh, today uh, as, as when they were written down. Um, and I understand last week you looked at ceasing um, and in the future weeks, I think next week, Joey, uh, with embracing and then feasting. But I want to ask you this question. When was the last time that someone asked you how you were doing and you responded by saying, I'm well rested. It probably doesn't happen much because our culture does not encourage it. And uh, I, uh, I want us to think about this idea of Sabbath um, because it's crucial. It's crucial for us. And uh, sorry, this idea of Sabbath um, is not something that our, that our culture finds to be all that important. In fact, as we think about Sabbath and rest, sorry for the red here, it's a little hard to see. Rest is foreign in our culture and it's very often discouraged. Some of you even may be thinking now as we think about rest and Sabbath rest, are you kidding me? 
Do you know how demanding my boss is? How many responsibilities I have in my career? Do you understand what it's like to have three kids under the age of five? Are you kidding me? I could never rest. People might think I'm lazy. Rest is a good idea. But if I plan on prioritizing rest at some point in my life, that'll just have to happen at a later point. Well, how much of a problem is this idea of rest in our culture today? But fascinating. I happen to be reading not too long ago. There's a, there's a group uh, called the U.S. Travel Association. And their entire association is to help advocate that American employees use their full allotted vacation time. And what I found is that in 2013, they actually polled all the employees and found that only 19% of the employees of that organization took their full vacation. <laughs> Man, that's astounding, isn't it? Another large corporation actually noticed that no one was taking their vacation time and actually said, we will pay you $5,000 in addition to your already paid time off if you go do it. But the thing is, you have to leave your phone and your computer on your desk and leave it here and completely unplug, and less than 10% of those employees took them up on it. Some of you are like, I want to work there. Are you kidding me? <laughs> but we live in a culture that defines one's worth on what we do, our status, and how well we do it, our productivity and efficiency. So in some ways, maybe we shouldn't be surprised by this. Right? This is not a new concept. In fact, this worth-defining metric has been around for thousands of years. Now, the book of Exodus records that the Israelites were in bondage from Egypt. Pharaoh commanded that the Hebrew slaves produce bricks to build his Egyptian empire. And he became more and more ruthless in his demand for more and more and more and more. And his ruthless, ruthlessness grew so much that he took away their straw Right? An important component in making the bricks stick together. The hay and the straw were taken away, thus making it almost impossible to keep up with the already unachievable quota of bricks that he demanded of his slaves. The quality and the quantity of the, the bricks produced is how Pharaoh was equating the worth of the Hebrew slaves. And that was the way of the Egyptian empire and the way in which it was built. And so this idea of self-worth was based on the amount of bricks that you produced. Okay? So I want us to think about this idea of bricks because it's a pretty important one. Okay? So your identity, you produce a brick. All right, you're okay. You produce another brick. Oh, wow, you're, you actually are more worthwhile. You produce another brick. Wow, you actually have great worth. And the bigger that stack, the more important you were in the empire mindset. And today you say, well, we don't use bricks. Well, we do. They're just not looking like that. So what are the bricks that we use today in our culture? Spreadsheets, annual performance reviews, bottom lines, income levels, employee ranking in the org chart, how many times we've been published or recognized by our peers in our field. It's all to build the empire. Those are our bricks. They too are bricks, different kinds of bricks, but modern bricks nonetheless. And when we allow these modern day bricks to define our worth and value, we soon find out we too are in bondage and in slavery. That becomes our story too when that becomes our identity. And so God 
loving the Israelites says there's a better alternative than your worth being determined by that. So he actually creates, in Exodus chapter 20, and I want to encourage you to turn there. We're going to look at that in just a moment here. He creates Sabbath rest, which is, and it's again hard to see up here, a commanded gift. What do you think about that phrase, commanded gift? God said to them, you have way more worth than that stack of bricks. Much more, so much more that merely what you do or how well you do it that I actually need to remind you of this each and every week because you live in an empire culture that dominates the narrative that says that's who you are. The bigger that stack, the better you are. And because you forget it, you need to be reminded every week what that's about. And therefore, I want you to rest. God said, I want you to stop all that you're doing for one day a week, completely stop and rest. To be reminded that your worth is not in efficiency or productivity or status, but in meaning and value simply because you are my people, God says, I love you. And so in Exodus chapter 20, um, that's where we see the Ten Commandments. Right? He's giving values that are different than what the empire values and how we treat one another, how we interact with this God of the universe. And I'm not going to read all the Ten Commandments. I actually just want to focus on the Fourth Commandment, which starts in verse 8, and it says this, Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all of your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. Neither you, nor your son or daughter, nor manservant or maidservant, nor any animals, nor the alien within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them. But he rested on the seventh day, and therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. You know what's interesting is that God, all-powerful and no, no limitations whatsoever, rested, not because he had to, not because he needed to, but because he wanted to model for his people what that looked like. I don't know about you, but I'm tempted to rest only when I need it. God didn't need rest, yet he models that for his people and says, I don't just tell you what to do, I will model it and then enter into that way. But it's a commanded gift, and sometimes we look at that and say that's so legalistic, and certainly that can be a temptation and a tendency. But why is this a commanded gift? Why is Sabbath rest a commanded gift? Because sometimes accepting it can be so difficult that sometimes we need to do something simply because we are being obedient to those or someone in authority. Because we have to at the beginning until we realize when we're in it, wait, 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 wait. This actually is a great gift to me. I remember Mrs. Uh, Mrs. Templeton in fifth grade. I, I'm left-handed, and I kind of had this big hook, and I would murder my pens, and they would break and bleed all over my hand, and, and, uh, and I would come home with, like, ink and stuff all over my hands. And she said, I am forcing you, Jr. You need to actually turn your hand correctly and learn to write. And I hated it, and I hated her for it. My hand would cramp up, and I had horrible handwriting, and I, um, it took me forever to do my homework. What's interesting, though, is that by her forcing me to do that, she said, if I see you go back to this, i got to take five points off your test. And I just was so upset at Mrs. Templeton. I don't know where she is. I've never talked to her past fifth grade. But now I wish I could go back and give her a hug. 
Because what she did is she actually corrected something and it became a gift and I didn't realize it till years later. That sometimes we have to be forced to do things because we don't see their benefit at the beginning. But ultimately we realize this is a gift. This person cared about me. And God does the same thing here. He commands this of us not to be a killjoy, but that one day we might enter into these rhythms and go, this is such a gift. But it took me a while to see it. You know, the kingdom of God values people differently than the empire does. And because the message of the empire is so strong, even today in our culture, we have to be in different rhythms, learning an alternative story, which means living an alternative way. You know, what's interesting about the Ten Commandments, if you, if you look at that passage there in Exodus 20, have you ever noticed that among the Ten Commandments, the most ink that is used of all the Ten Commandments has to do with Sabbath? Why is that? Well, I think that God understood how people are wired, that this is hard, and to be really clear that this is an important part of what it means to be His people. And did you know that one of the most uh, often written, uh, this is often written off and it's so Old Testament, but did you notice that this is not an individualistic thing either? This is very communal. I think when we think of rest, we think of me by myself, I get away. But did you notice there it says, even your maidservant and your manservant, your donkey, your ox, your servant, everything that's under your care, your son or your daughter, they need to rest too. That's a communal thing. It's not just you go do it by yourself, but we do this together as the people of God. And I have a confession to make. Rest is not easy for me. Yes, I just came off of a sabbatical and I am very rested. I thought I was fine when I went on sabbatical. I had no idea how much I did not know how to rest. I'm a type A, oldest child, perfectionistic, Enneagram 1, high-octane driven leader. And for parts of my life, I've viewed rest as a curse at worst, not a gift, maybe a little more softly as something to tolerate as a necessity, similar to when my phone needs to be charged because the battery's low. It's just something you have to do. I mean, this is how bad it is. I mean, talking with my kids at the dinner table um, a few weeks ago, and we do this a lot. We throw out a question at dinner, and my, my sons are nine and five, and so we all interact around a question. And the question was, if you could be a, a superhero and have one superpower, what would your superpower be, right? Would it be invisibility? Would it be, you know, ability to fly, um, incredible strength, freeze people, blow things up, what, whatever it would be? And they all got around and they said, Dad, what about you? And this, you know what mine would be? The ability to function healthily with no sleep. My wife's like, really? Like, that's ridiculous. Like, that's, that's pathetic. And I was like, but think of how much you could get done and how much you could read and all the stuff you could. She goes, that's ridiculous. I mean, that's, how, how sorry is that about me? But that's what I dream about sometimes is that I would just be fully functioning, fully healthy, no sleep. I have a ways to go with this idea of Sabbath, as you can tell. And certainly we have to avoid legalism as we think about Sabbath, for sure. The Pharisees, and many of them even today, I had a chance to live and study in Israel for a while, uh, about a decade ago. Um, even the Pharisees and the Jews that are there today take this to the point that they enslave themselves with little rules about Sabbath day. They have mile markers around Jerusalem saying you can only walk up to a mile, but once you get to that marker, you cannot walk any further. 
So right on the street. You can't light a candle, you can't cut with scissors, you can't bake, you can't have sex because you might actually be creating something and God didn't create anything. He rested on the seventh day, so you can't either. I'm not sure that's what God had in mind to be that legalistic about hundreds of rules of what you could and couldn't do on one day of the week. But what gets in the way of rest for us? I think that's important for us to think through as the people of God. What, what, what do we have to be aware of, of, of the barriers to rest? I think drivenness and ambition, a desire to produce, the unwillingness and the inability to see it as a gift, the natural demands around us, we're addicted to busyness, we've been conditioned by our culture, and we know no other way to live sometimes. But I actually believe that the main reason we don't enter into rest is fear. Fear of not measuring up, not living up to expectations, ours or other people's. Fear. And so Sabbath rest, we see this fear, and so therefore Sabbath rest requires faith. It requires deep faith on our part. It's not just passively sitting around and doing nothing, although that certainly can be part of it. But it's also this active form of faith. You know, Jews believe that Sabbath actually begins at sundown on Friday night and finishes Sunday, sundown on Saturday night. They believe days begin at sundown and not, not on the midnight clock that we have. Now, where did that come from? Actually, straight out of Genesis 1, right? When God was creating the world, what does it say? There was evening and there was morning the first day. There was evening and there was morning the second day. So right out of the scriptures, they're taking God's measurement of time and using that as a day. So when the sun goes down on Friday night, Sabbath has officially begun, Shabbat. And then it concludes at sundown on Saturday night. Now, if you think about it that way, Think about faith in the mindset of a Jew. If that's how you thought about your day, that means that the first thing that you would do at the beginning of every day is nothing. The first thing you would do is sleep. So instead of waking up and going, I got so much to do today, the day has started. They say that it's a new day and it is God's world. And the best way I enter into this new day is by trusting him by doing nothing but sleeping and resting. How would that shape your understanding of faith and how you engage your day? Instead of resting from work, Jews work from rest. What would that shift look like in our own lives if instead of resting from work, we worked from rest? I remember um, I was in college, sophomore, I'm not sure why this, I was really struck by this idea of Sabbath, but I just said, hey, I don't have a full-time job, but I'm a full-time student. And so like my work is homework and study. And so I just said, I'm going to make it a priority that on Sundays, I'm not going to do any work. Not in a legalistic way, but I'm just going to see if I can be less stressed. I was so like worked up on Sunday afternoons and Sunday night, and then I'd be stressed and go into the week ahead and be miserable and and I said, I'm just going to trust here. I'm going to just trust in this situation. And sometimes that meant being up late Friday night like a nerd in the, in the library. And sometimes that meant going to bed a decent hour to get up Saturday morning to actually get some work done before people rolled out of bed about noon. But you know what? It was one of the best decisions I made in all of college to be able to rest in that. 
and to try that. It was, became a gift for me. For me, Mondays are my Sabbath now since as a pastor, Sunday is a bit busy for me. Uh, and I'm embarrassed to admit that the day of the week where I have to trust God the most is Mondays because it means I must do nothing at all. Mondays are an active effort to slay my idols of productivity and progress in my heart. But God, I'll just check one email. But God, I'll just make one call because it's really important. And sometimes I have to admit this horrible thought. Jesus, will you be at this, asleep at the wheel of our church on Monday? Will you be asleep at the wheel in the universe on Monday? And that's where he whispers in my ear, I got it. Seriously, I got it. I created this thing, I got it. This isn't the empire we're after, he whispers, it's the kingdom. And I'm not after you pursuing empire values, JR. You know, Sabbath helps me, and I think it helps us as the people of God hear the alternate but real story that is profoundly different than the story our culture tells us where our worth comes from. And so rest, here's the great news. Uh, Sabbath rest is available to us only because of what God has done, not because what we have done. So let me be blunt with you and say I have really bad news. If life is all up to you, and meaning is derived from what you do and what you accomplish, then you better get to work. There is no opportunity for you to rest. There's just simply too much to keep up with in the demands of the culture of how you get ahead. And if life is up to some impersonal, moralistic deity that expects you to stay in line and keep your nose clean and do all the right things and never make a mistake, then you better stay busy. But there's no opportunity for you to enter into any sort of rest. But I'll be blunt here with the good news, too. And the good news is this, that if life and its meaning are determined by a personal and intimate, yet powerful and all-knowing God who offers us grace and strength in the midst of our weakness and shortcomings, who loves us because of, not because of our good works, but because of the righteousness of His Son, Jesus, and what He's done on our behalf, well, friends, there is ample opportunity for you and I to enter into rest. It's available. And you can rest because of the good news of the gospel. In fact, there's no other reason for you to rest. You can rest because as people who have received the gift of grace, you have nothing to hide, you have nothing to lose, and you have nothing to prove. Let that sink in. You have nothing to hide. You have nothing to lose and nothing to prove as followers of Jesus. God's work through His Son, Jesus, is the single greatest event in human history that opened the doors to your life, but also opened the doors up to rest in your life. Sabbath rest doesn't try to boost your self-esteem. That's a value of the empire. It seeks to boost our Christ-esteem, as Ed Shaw says. Church is a place where we boost our Christ-esteem with each other. 
Whereas our identity is actually rooted not in what we've done or what we accomplish or how well we do it, because of, but because of what Christ has done. And imagine if one of the greatest evangelistic on-ramps you have to your neighbors and coworkers is that you rested well. And that they would want to know how you can possibly do that in the demands of the culture. And how you can live in such freedom and not be enslaved by the oppressive brick-making demands of the culture. And you say, I'd be glad to show you and tell you how. In Hebrews chapter 4, the author says this. It says, Therefore, since the promise of entering His rest still stands, not an Old Testament thing, it still stands today, let us be careful that none of you have uh, been found to have fallen short of it. We who have faith should enter into that rest. We who have faith should enter into that rest. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works, just as God did from His. Let us therefore make every opportunity to enter that rest so that no one will perish by following their example of disobedience. Imagine if Oak Church had the reputation of being those are people that love well because they rest well. Imagine if you were the most well-rested church in the triangle. It'd be pretty amazing. Before I close, I think it's important for us to just very briefly look at some very practical and specific ways that we might be able to do this, and you all as a community might be able to do this, because um, the test of all teaching is practice. It doesn't matter how good it is up here. It determines uh, the effectiveness of the teaching on what happens out here and out there. So let me just recommend a few things to be ridiculously practical that I submit to your discernment of how you might do this individually and potentially together as a community. Okay? The first one is this. A mentor of mine says that to take Sabbath rest seriously, just two things are needed. To pray and play. Pray and play. And by the way, it's okay to be bored on Sabbath. <laughs> it's okay. There's permission to be bored. We can make boredom bear fruit. So there are some things that we make sure we pray and play in terms of our family. One of them is I always get horizontal. I never do that the other six days of the week, but just being able to kick my feet up on the couch and read the paper or just listen to music, just get horizontal at some point, quite literally, during the day, maybe take a nap. To develop a to-don't list, not legalistically, but there are things that I just know that I can't do because if I were to do them, I can't possibly be resting. To slow down. Maybe the most spiritual and radical thing you do this week is take a nap. Like, I have a fast gait. My wife says that I walk with purpose and speed, right? I'm like, you're right. Yeah, we're off to the next thing. Let's get going. And so I have to force myself when I go pick up my kids on Monday from school to leave earlier when I walk to go get them. I have to stroll. I have to force myself to slow down when I walk rather than just blazing ahead. So on my to-don't list is I can't walk fast because it does something to my soul. It gets me revved up. And to just rest and enjoy the walk, to play with my sons, to build Lego castles or throw the football or go on a bike ride. The, 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 the importance of play is that you don't get anything accomplished. That's what play, that's how we define play in our culture. So I want to submit to you, pray and play. Pray and play on a Sabbath day. Here's the second one. 
take a technology rest. Now this may sound kind of weird, but I have to, I have to absolutely sign out of all social media on Mondays. Not because it's bad, but for me, it doesn't allow my mind and soul to rest. You know, this idea of like our maidservant and manservant and horse and donkey that we read about in Exodus 20, those were things that were intended to serve you and your purposes in the world, right? So you know what our modern day donkey is? At least it is for me. To turn off your phone. What would it look like if you didn't check email? That's crazy, right? That's unrealistic. I heard Condoleezza Rice talk about how she, when she was Secretary of, of State and, and uh, she was, you know, in the Bush administration, she took a Sabbath. She'd go to church and she'd go home. She loves the Vikings. She's a huge NFL fan. She would watch the Vikings game. She would curl up in her sweats on the couch and just hang out the rest of the day. And I'm thinking if someone that high in office, in power, can rest, I think we can too. She practices Sabbath. Now, the third thing is just to be honest with how you're feeling. I find it so embarrassing but freeing for me to be honest to say Mondays are hard to trust. To journal about it or to have conversation partners to say, what is Sabbath teaching you about your trust in God? Or what is it revealing in certain areas of your life that may feel like idols? Another one I want to submit to you is help others with this. You know, Chick-fil-A does this. They're closed on Sundays, which I absolutely love, but I absolutely hate it on Sundays, right? Don't you always want a Chick-fil-A sandwich like on Sunday? Like, why is that? Like, I just absolutely crave it Sunday afternoons, and, and I'm like, oh, dang. I mean, cool, Truett Cathy, great job, way to set it up as an organization, but dang it, right? But he's helping his staff rest. He's helping everyone in sort of in his control rest to be home with their families, whether they're followers of Jesus or not. He said, I don't care. My corporation needs to help people rest. And he takes a hit financially every week because of it. Every time that Chick-fil-A is in the mall, I don't know if you know this or not, they not only lose business, one-seventh of their business, they also pay a fine for every food court closing. So four times a month, they're paying a fine in their contract, which they know is coming, for being closed in the food court mall. And they're losing a seventh of their business. And he's saying, I'm still going to trust God with this. I think Chick-fil-A is doing just fine, if you ask me. But I want to talk to young parents, too. For young parents, and I speak with first-person experience here, first-hand experience, that is the most exhausting stage of my adult life. And we had no family in the area. We have no family in the area for about 10 hours. So we, we would love to be able to depend on grandma and grandpa. We just can't. And they would love to help us, but they just can't. But Oak Church, you want to do something that's radical for young parents in this church? Offer to babysit regularly so those parents can rest. You can help each other. You can bless each other in this very important area. Our family just coming off a sabbatical has instituted. Our boys are beyond nap time, nine and five. But we just said, all right, new rule. Not a rule. New invitation. Sunday afternoons, for two hours, everybody takes a nap. I don't know why we didn't do that sooner, 
And we, sometimes we have to call it rest time so our nine-year-old's like, I'm too old for a nap. Fine, just do a rest time. Okay, yes. <laughs> but it's great from 1.30 to 3.30 or 2 to 4 just to be able to nap. And they're going to nap this afternoon even though I'm here. And that's great. Maybe you do that with your family. Just have quiet throughout the house. Now, there's one pastor in the Ecclesia Network who opens up his home each Sunday afternoon after their church gatherings. And he and his wife just invite people to come over to watch football. They say the fridge is available, make food, eat it. They take naps on the couch. Sometimes they'll, um, Mike will go upstairs, he'll walk in a room like, oh, there's someone sleeping on the bed. Okay, sorry about that. Like they're just, they just open their home up to encourage Sabbath resting as a community together. I mean, how radical is that? But what a beautiful picture of learning to rest together as a church. Imagine if Oak Church saw the idea of rest not as an individual pursuit, uh, which is very American, but as a communal attempt. Let me end with this. Some of you may be saying this idea of rest is radical. Is it even possible in our culture today? And I'll say this. It absolutely is radical, but so is the gospel. And that's what makes it so beautiful. And yes, it is possible, but it requires great faith and even some sacrifice. And as we read in Hebrews, because of what Jesus has done, it's absolutely possible, and we are invited, invited into that rest. And accepting gifts is hard in our culture. It puts us in a posture of humility and out of a posture of self-sufficiency. But if we can humble ourselves to receive this gift given to us from our amazing, personal, loving Father who wants to outlandishly give us gifts, that's available to us if we will receive it as such. If we cannot rest, we cannot experience the fullness of grace because we will always be convinced that it's up to us and our self-sufficiency and that my worth is dependent upon my progress and productivity. I have good news, Oak Church. If you've placed the keys of your life into the hands of a loving God, then your worth is not measured in bricks. Your worth is measured in bread and in wine. And so the good news says, put the bricks away. That's not how you have to be evaluated. And Jesus, you don't have to do anything. All I have to do is see what I've already done for you. So this is your identity, not that. So when Jesus did what he did on the cross, he put the bricks away. And he says, that's not how I see you. And that's not where your worth comes from. And you don't have to live under that oppressive empire culture. Be people of freedom that live out the kingdom of God, the rule and the reign of God, which have very different values. We are not bricks. We are people. Loved by God, we have deep worth and value that lies in much more than what we can produce. So live into that identity, Oak Church. Live into that as the people of God receiving the rest. And so I just end with this question for us. Will we accept the gift of rest that is available to us? I can't answer that for you. Only you can. But it's available to you because of what Jesus has done to put the bricks away and to say, this is my body and this is my blood for you. Let's pray. God, thanks for... Um, this idea of Sabbath, this idea of rest. Thank you for Oak Church and their willingness to um, 
really want to wrestle with what does this look like, not in a legalistic way, but as a gift, a gift you've given to us that we may sometimes feel like it's a killjoy, but it actually reminds us of our gospel identity, and it actually is something we can look back on and say, God, you have invited me to live a life of freedom, and I can do that. And I don't have to live up to the empire values, so may we be people of the king and not people of the emperor or people of Pharaoh. There are many temptations to be people of Pharaoh, but that's not who we are. And so we need to be reminded every week because we so often forget. May we be restful people because you rested and modeled it for us. And because we have nothing to hide, nothing to lose, and nothing to prove. And our identity is not valued in progress or productivity but in the fact that we are children of the Most High God. And it's with that that we say, thanks and amen.